0: scroll is basically he, you know. remember he eats it, it makes his stomach bitter but in his mouth it's sweet as honey and then he goes to proclaim that and the contents of that little s- scroll are essentially this remarkable thing that God is going to use the church in order to call the nations to repentance so this is, this is emphasis on what the church does and also then by extension what the, what the church must suffer in order to do this Okay. So if you look at verse 11, you, that's um, the end of chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 11, you'll, you'll see these themes tied together and we'll get into the new material in chapter 11. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The whole gospel is to go forth. The, the salvation of the world is to be affected um, by the church of Christ, which of course is Christ embodied. All right, and then chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, which happens, by the way, to be identical to 42 months. And they will uh, do so clothed in sackcloth. All right, and then we, tri- uh, then we transition into the two witnesses, which uh, take us all the way up to the seventh and final trumpet. Before we get into the two witnesses, let's get into just a little bit of the background. I, I think I mean, we could spend all, all class on this on these first uh, two verses of chapter 11. I promise we won't. But let's get the background and let's get a, just a couple of, of key points in mind. So we want to turn to Ezekiel 40 to see uh, the background of this text and how it is functioning, how John is grabbing... Uh, I mean, obviously, you have complexity here because he's seeing the vision. But this vision isn't coming outside of a theological context, and John is recognizing that context. And this bit about the temple is very important, as Ezekiel will show, and in fact, it throws us forward, ultimately, to the climax of Revelation. Sort of in the same way that the other interlude ends with the lamb who is their shepherd, and he's wiping every tear away, away from their eyes, and it's sort of this moment of great climax and satisfaction. So then, too, uh, you've got hints of that, hints of the end, just albeit here in different imagery. Okay, Ezekiel chapter 40, hopefully you're, uh, you're there. If you have a cell phone, you've been there for five minutes already. Uh, chapter 40, and then one through five, just to get a flavor here. In the twenty-fifth year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord, and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you, declare all that you see to the house of Israel. All right, now you probably noticed your hand heading, if you have an ESV, especially Lutheran Study Bible, your heading says what? This is a vision of the new temple. And you see the element where this figure has a reed in his hand. It's a measuring reed in his hand. So he's going to measure the new temple. All right. If you, uh, if you simply flip forward in Ezekiel, now we could read all of this, of course, but we're just not going to do this. Uh, flip forward with me, and what you're going to end up seeing described is the outer court. You, in fact, you can see that in the next heading, the east gate to the outer court. Okay? And then over in uh, chapter 40, verse 17, you can see the heading, the outer court. So keep going until you hit verse 28. Then you're going to see the inner court. So here's the outer and the inner court, which we heard... Uh, John allude to in Revelation. And then even when you go up to, uh, all the way to chapter 41, you have the inner inner temple. And in chapter 42, the temple's chambers. Um, Just continuing on into 43, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And then you have in, in verse 13 and following of chapter 43, the altar mentioned. We heard that mentioned. Carrying on, verse forty-four, the gate for the prince and rules for Levitical priests, and so on and so on. Now, what I want you to see by just uh, going to verse forty—or excuse me, chapter forty-seven—is you'll see water flowing from the temple. This is going to be imagery used at the very end of Revelation, and then all I want you to notice is that that's how, uh, by flipping the page, is that chapter 48 is how Ezekiel ends. So Ezekiel is a very large prophecy, and the climax, the climax of Ezekiel is this vision of a new temple, and that temple is being measured. And a lot of A lot of Zionistic Christians misunderstand this to be, oh, the temple has to be rebuilt in geographical Israel over there in order for the end times to come. The problem is when you look at the measurements, that's simply impossible. The measurements of this temple are obviously symbolic. Obviously symbolic. And what's being envisioned here by Ezekiel is, and you're going to see this in Revelation, at the very end of Revelation, the climax is... God with his people in such a way that God himself is our temple. Jesus himself is our temple. Alright, now I just want you to see those those themes because that's going to help you now as you uh, consider verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. You're going to see the themes and you're going to recognize them which is what John intends you're going to see that they're familiar. So, then I was giving a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar. We saw both those elements and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay, we'll talk about the 42 months and the time in just a minute, because that's kind of a tr- our transition. What is going on here? Of course, we know the connection with Ezekiel. We also have in the back of our minds one of Jesus' very famous teachings, in fact, so foundational to his own ministry and teaching that it was brought up uh, by the court of Caiaphas when they were trying to accuse him of blasphemy. Remember the accusation? This man said that he would destroy the temple, which is not quite true. He said, you destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. Now what's he talking about? The temple of his body. And if Jesus' temple is the, you know, if, the, if, if Jesus' body is the temple, that's the temple for us as Christians, that is the new temple. Christ himself is the new temple. Which is why then you start to see a slow separation, even in the book of Acts, they're, they're attending the physical temple, but then they're attending what looks like divine service with the fellowship of the apostles, the prayers, the breaking of bread, etc. Okay. As the Jews begin to persecute the Christians, there's a complete and full separation, and then, in 70 AD, the physical temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. There, it could not be made more plain that the temple of God's people is Jesus. It's Jesus, and, it, and that is precisely what it means to worship the Father in spirit and truth to recognize that Jesus is the temple. So far, so good. Now then, bring to mind all of those New Testament Scripture verses that talk about Jesus being one with us, and indeed, we being as living stones, for one example, built up into the household, built up into the temple of God. You see? So not only is Christ the temple, that's absolutely true, but who else is the temple? In Christ we are the temple. That is the new temple. John in all likelihood is writing this after the physical temple has been destroyed. So again, think of how this, think of how this would sound in your ears, you know, as a as a Christian. You would, you know, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told rise and measure the temple of God. It was destroyed. It was destroyed decades ago. So what on earth is he talking about? Ah, the new temple the temple of which Ezekiel spoke. And then, if you know the end of Revelation, the temple of which then is the climax of of Revelation, the dwelling place of God with man. Okay, now, understanding that the new temple is Christ, and in this instance, Christ and his people, that poises us to understand what's going on about this inner and outer court. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, what does it mean that they're going to trample the outer court but not the inner court? I think the best commentators take it this way. God allows the outer court, as it were, of Christendom to be trampled. That is, Christians are persecuted. We are trampled. We are treated as the offscouring of the earth. And God allows us to be abused up until a point. He will not allow that trampling to go into the inner sanctuary, the inner sanctum where our faith with God is. Let me put it in really plain terms. It, Jesus says, "Do not fear the one who can destroy the body only." And that's what we're talking about with the trampling of the outer court. They can trample the outer court. They can destroy the body only. The soul is perfectly safe with God. Right? Do not fear him who can trample the body only. Fear him who can, or who can kill the body only. Fear him who can, Fear him, who can? Easy for you to say. Kill both body and soul, and that's God. So we fear God and not man, we fear God and not the devil. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, etc. Okay. So I think that's the best read on this, is the church is the dwelling place of God on earth, and it's the outpost from which this proclamation is going to go forward, which is increasingly going to take on the connotations of spiritual warfare, spiritual battle. Not unlike Paul saying, Take on, put on the full armor of God, etc. Okay? And so what does, the, what does the fortress of God, what does the temple of God on earth look like? It looks like the outer part is being destroyed. It looks like the body is being killed, but not the inner court, not the faith. So perpetually killed, but perpetually alive. Perpetually losing, but perpetually winning. We start to gain this picture of the church. Now, this becomes all the more clear as we go into the image of the two witnesses. The two witnesses are going to be just like this. We're going to see that the two witnesses are actually the embodiment of the church as well. So in both interludes, you have different pictures of the church on earth. In the overarching theme of what Revelation is trying to do is it's trying to get first, second century Christians, and then by extension, us, to perceive our reality spiritually. To perceive our reality spiritually. To see our place and role in this life and the experiences we and other Christians have, but to understand them in the way that God understands them, in the way that heaven understands them. When we die, many, many, many things will be made clear. But this is part of it. We will simply see ourselves as part and parcel of this imagery of this warfare and the existence of the church on earth and then the church in heaven. Okay, so that, again, without giving too much away, leaning forward into the the climax of Revelation, that's probably about sufficient in my mind for those first two verses and that imagery of the temple. Do you have any, any thoughts that you'd like to add to it or anything that I can clarify for you? Okay. Now, um, I want to go into Reardon. There's such good commentary on these sections, by the way, in all three of the commentaries that I'm using as my, as my primary references in my mind when I was preparing for this, I was like, I just kind of want to sit down in a chair and read you, <laughs> read you all these commentaries. But, you know, that's not exactly my job, is it? Um, so this is, this is going to really, yeah, I think this is going to help us with some of the, uh, the themes. Okay, just picking up mid-thought here a bit. Where do we get this language of uh, 42 months? 1,260 days. Do you see that in uh, verse 2 and verse 3? Yeah, and there's going to be another reference to time. In fact, this period gets referenced. Gets referenced as we go along. Let me give you just a little bit of background the Roman siege of Jerusalem this is mid-sentence also lasted three and a half years from AD 67 to 70 so the Roman siege of Jerusalem is fresh, fresh history and that's the destruction of the temple and it lasts three and a half years you see Where where that language and imagery would make sense via current events for the first century he continues, In the present chapter, this length of time refers to the persecution of the Christian church, of which Jerusalem's temple was a type and foreshadowing. When the church, uh, within the Christian church, however, we find an inner court, as it were, a deep interior dimension that the forces of evil cannot trample. The inviolability... Uh, is conferred by being sealed with the sign of the living God. It asserts that believers are not to fear those who can kill the body, but can do no more, because there yet remains an inner court that is off-limits to the invader and defiler. This is the inner court of which John is told to make the measure, a measuring that he will narrate later, chapter 21. The literary background of John's vision of the two witnesses is Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 and 11 through 14. All right, let's turn there for for a minute. So, Zechariah 4, and we've spent time in Zechariah already. So you will recognize these, I hope. Um, as you're turning to Zechariah 4 and you get there, um, we will do uh, just verses 1 through 3 and then 11 through 14. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. Okay? How many lamps? Just one. And earlier in Revelation, we identified that one lamp with the Holy Spirit. But as John and Revelation, the apocalyptic genre, just stacks layer upon layer upon layer of meaning, we also find connection with the Holy Spirit and the churches. So we've got all these themes kind of blurring together, but here we have a singular golden lampstand. Verse 3, And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Okay, well, Let's read just a little further. Why not? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, So we've got this figure, uh Zerubbabel. And we're going to keep him in mind. Zerubbabel is in the line of David. And as, as Revelation takes this imagery up, and we're going to talk about two witnesses, one of, the, one of the key reference to have in mind, again, layer upon layer of meaning, is to have this figure, Zerubbabel, in mind as one of the two witnesses, because he's of the royal Davidic line. All right. What we also see here, and perhaps like the most key, even though it's not a direct referent, not by might nor by power, but by by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The warfare waged by the church on earth is not by might, not by power. We're not strapping on our swords and shields. We're not getting in our F-16s and fighting the holy war. Um, Rather, it is done by the Holy Spirit, by the proclamation of the word. All right, now we've got one, we've got one lamp, we've got two olive trees, and then we've got this business about, not by my might nor power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, we've also got this figure, Zerubbabel. Now, let's jump forward to uh, verse 11 through 14. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, if you drop down to your study note in your Lutheran study Bible on uh, verse 13 and 14, the two anointed ones, you can see the ESV study note, um, if you like, for a little background on that language. Israelite high priests, for example, Exodus 40.13, and kings, 2 Samuel 2.4. These are the anointed ones. Now, in the context of Zechariah, this is the, in Zechariah, this is the, the second temple. So the first temple is built by Solomon, it's destroyed in 586, right? and then the second temple is built, and then of course Herod is greatly improving that temple, and then Jesus, and then 70, that temple is destroyed, and then there's no more physical temple, Right? So these guys are talking about the rebuilding of the second temple, and you've got two key figures involved. You've got Zerubbabel, who is, again, royal Davidic line, and you've got Joshua. Now, not Joshua who uh, leads them into Jericho, a different Joshua, who is the high priest. So in the immediate context of Zechariah, the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth are Joshua and Zerubbabel. So you see that in the study note. Zechariah heard from the angel that the high priest Joshua and the governor Zerubbabel had been chosen by leaders to stand by the Lord of the whole earth. As leaders, they were to supply the oil to complete the temple rebuilding project. Jesus Christ is the ultimate anointed one. Who, as prophet, priest, and king, supplies the oil of joy to all believers. Okay. So if you were to ask yourself this question, what are the two witnesses in Zechariah's text? You have Zerubbabel and Joshua, that would be your answer. And the picture is that, is that they are given the imagery of two olive trees and from the olive trees is flowing the oil and the oil is flowing into the single candle, the candelabra, sevenfold candle, candelabra, and thus fueling it, preparing the, I mean, what's the word I'm looking for? Giving, uh, giving the oil that it can burn and then illumine. Does that make sense? If you were to, if you were to put this in Christian terms, you, you wouldn't be too far off to think in terms of church and ministry. Church and ministry. It forms a whole. And the ministry is to fuel the church, is given by Christ to fuel the church so that the church can shine brightly uh, and give light to the world. So that's, that's the imagery heretofore, um, at least in the background, in terms of uh, Zechariah's text. Okay, does that help at least give you some sense that when we get to the two witnesses um, in, in chapter 11, we have an Old Testament background? Let's let's go back to chapter 11 then and look and and see. um, Yeah, Yeah, go back to chapter 11 and I'll take just a little bit more from this commentary. The literary background of John's vision of the two witnesses is Zechariah 4, the verses we just read, where the prophet has in mind the anointed ruler Zerubbabel and the anointed priest uh, Joshua the two men preserved the worship in God's house. These two figures represented royalty. Zerubbabel was a descendant of David and priesthood. Joshua was a descendant of Aaron. Which are two essential aspects of the life in Christ. Two witnesses are required, this being the minimum number required in order to make the case, Deuteronomy 19.15. But the two witnesses in this chapter of Revelation are the heirs not only to Zerubbabel and Joshua, but also to Moses and Elijah. All right, let's, let's go forward. Then we'll hit the, maybe at the end we'll hit this idea of the time. All right, so verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So the only difference between Zechariah and Revelation is two lampstands instead of one. And these two figures are called the two lampstands, also the two olive trees. So which are they? Yes, and that's how, revela- that's how Revelation works. It's layer upon layer. It's image upon image. And you get this really, really rich, uh, that you could, like, like this very rich experience that you couldn't have otherwise unless you did it this way. It's like the, one of the chief strengths of the apocalyptic genre. It's also one of the things that makes it confusing, but it's one of its chief strengths. All right, verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes so the point here is that their their power given to them by God is from their mouths and that that power is is expressed here as fire which we've seen closely connected to to God himself to the person and figure of Christ his eyes for example are described as flames of fire in chapter 1 if anyone would harm them verse 5 this is how he is doomed to be killed they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying okay who is that who shut the sky yeah Elijah so you have Elijah now and then look at the next line and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire who's that Moses so now you have Elijah and Moses see how we have layer upon layer we have the we have the t- <laughs> we have the two olive trees are the two lampstands are Zerubbabel and Joshua are Elijah and Moses. Okay. So that's what we have. And then we have this present tense ministry that these, that these are engaged in. And again, in context, in context, because it is the scroll given to John and he is given to go proclaim these things and open these things, and this is what's going to come upon the earth, this is all expressive of the reality of the church. All right, verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the, pe- the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So generation after generation after generation, it doesn't end well for the church. At least that's the impression we're given from earthly point of view. Now, we know that this beast that rises from the bottomless pit, this takes us back to chapter 9. This is, uh, this is Most people think this is Satan. If it's not Satan, it's one of his high-ranking minions. But in all likelihood, this is Satan who ostensibly wins victory after victory over the church. Generation after generation puts the church to death. And by the way, increasingly so in reality. And if you look at the figures, uh, many people say, it's oft-quoted, that the 20th century, in and of itself, there was more Christian martyrdom than all 19 other centuries combined. So you have you have escalation, and you have, I mean, you can see, you, yeah. Well, I mean, when you look at the 20th century, it's got all the whole, it's got all the hallmarks really of being like the end end times. Who knows if it is, or if it's just a dress rehearsal? Of course, you know, we're not going to, as I said last week, we're not going to sell everything we have and sit on lawn chairs. On, out on Dana Point and wait for the end, you know. But um, but if you're just just on paper, the fact that we've made it through the 20th century is a testament to God's unbelievable grace. It comes up in the Isaiah text: "Your ways are not my ways," and you know. And <laughs> and I've had I've had that quoted at me by. Uh, by, by pastors and teachers of the church who should know better but it's basically like it's, it's used as a proof text to be like God's confusing. <laughs> it's like no, that's not so the point that's not the point in Isaiah the point is that his, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts his ways are higher than our ways precisely in his mercy precisely in his mercy that's the astounding thing. The fact that we made it out of the 20th century with world wars, with mass plagues, with a persecution, with a global persecution of Christendom that outstrips all other 1,900 years, just re- I mean, just on paper, what is that? That is an incredible testimony of God's mercy. And uh, the fact that we're even here in, in what we call the 21st century is, is in and of itself miraculous. So um, we want to have those things in mind. This is the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit. He makes war on them. He conquers them and kills them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically, the Greek there actually says spiritually, is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. There's so much packed in here, but as it went for Jesus, so it goes for his church. As Jesus is crucified, so his church is put to death. As it looks like the devil defeats Jesus, it looks like the devil defeats the church. And indeed, in a sense, he does, in the sense that the outer courts are trampled, the bodies are put to death. Now, um, in this, uh, this great city, which is symbolically or spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. But where was the Lord crucified? Jerusalem. you who kill the prophets and murder those whom God has sent to you. So Jerusalem from below, to use Pauline language, Jerusalem from below is equated with Sodom and Egypt. What's Sodom? Crass immorality. What's Egypt? Slavery. Uh, Slavery, crass immorality, and then not recognizing or, or knowingly rejecting Christ. That's, that's this threefold image of Sodom and Egypt and where the Lord was crucified. That great city. Okay? So here again, you see the example of stacking, of layering, theological stacking and, and apocalyptic layering. Jerusalem below, Sodom, Egypt, and we're going to add to that, by the way, as we go along. But all three of those are one. All right, then verse 9. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets... Had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. So what's the the picture here? Obviously, the world treats them shamefully, uh, even in their death, uh, just as our Lord Jesus was treated shamefully, even in his death. And just as our Lord Jesus was quickened in the grave and returned to life, so the breath of life is brought back to these two witnesses, symbolizing God's people. And they, too, stand up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, just like Jesus did. So effectively as he is crucified, we are put to death. As he is raised from the dead, we are raised from the dead. As he ascends in a cloud, we ascend in a cloud. As it goes for Jesus, so it goes for us. And this is the victory. Now, you can see in this passage, and I don't remember, it was probably just in my preparatory remarks while we were waiting for the technical difficulties to be sorted out. But you can see why one of the commentators says, this isn't literal, and this isn't allegory. Because it's simply impossible to line this up and make this all make sense. This is thematic, visual, abstract, layered, multifaceted theology. If you'd like to have your, you know, every I dotted, every T crossed, your mind wrapped around every part. If you have kind of an engineering mind, I imagine that this would drive you nuts. Uh, But if you have a more artistic, abstract, uh, visualizing type of mindset and perception, this is right up your alley. Right up your alley. All All right, so then, They went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, so this would be like, if you were really to try to tightly line this up to another teaching in Scripture, this would effectively be the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and those who are believers in Christ taken up with him into the air, 1 Thessalonians 4. Okay, And then this great earthquake that precedes the seventh trumpet is really the, the opening salvo of the final act that closes this age. So if you were to try to line this up kind of tightly with what the scriptures very clearly teach elsewhere, that's probably how you do it. Well, we've got, some, uh, we've got some loose strings here. We've got the time issue. This uh, this 42 months, 1,260 days, this three and a half days, and then um, we've got, uh, we want to wrap this section up. But let's, let's approach those things and take care of those things uh, next week, including this tenth of the city that fell, this inversion of uh, the story of Elijah in the Old Testament. We'll take a look at all that uh, next week. The Lord be with you.